0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this
2: is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing, and I'm joined remotely via Zoom meeting by my co-host, Professor Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing, and the brand identity theorist. Hello, Americus.
1: Hi, Barbara. How are you doing today?
2: I am good. It's a <laughs> sunny day. Isn't it? I'm inc- fully vaccinated. Oh, my god. Wait a second. you else there? <laughs> you've,
1: had, you've had both doses, is that correct?
2: I have, and it's okay. been two weeks. That counts as 97%.
1: Well, there you go. It must be time to hit the bars now, right, Barbara? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though, yeah. Barbara, because one of the things that we have had a previous show talking about the from the consumer side. And the notion of marketing and persuasion, getting people to take this vaccination so we can get to herd immunity or whatever, you know, quickly to get things back to normal. That's on the consumer side. But there's also kind of the the company side as well, right? There, there are these issues that are associated with the actual uh, makers of these vaccination drugs, if you will. And there's something to be said about that. Have you got anything for me that we can talk about that might address this other side?
2: Yeah, we have a a very special guest today. I'm really delighted to have this guest. We have Robert Clara, who's the senior editor of brands at Adweek, and he specializes in covering the evolution and impact of brands. And that's a really interesting topic during 2020. What's been happening with brands? What's the value av- of advertising? What are different ways to create brands? What should brands stand for? And he's an expert and has written some really provocative and interesting stories on all of these topics. So, Robert, we're delighted to have you here on the show. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Barbara. It's a pleasure to be here, and hi, Americas.
1: Hey, Robert. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining us on the program.
0: Absolutely.
2: Why don't we dive right into the topic of everybody's talking about, mm-hmm. pharma and the vaccines? And I think that you wrote an article recently yes. talking about like what some of these vaccines have done to the brand equity of the mm-hmm. companies who've created them, like for Pfizer or Moderna. Do you want to give us a soundbite or...? Yeah, or and just more to, even of the opposition.
1: That's right. And just, but just, just to give some context, I was looking at the CDC website as of today, uh, Barbara, and the CDC is reporting that in terms of the country, 11.3% of the entire country is fully vaccinated right now. Uh, and only 3.4% of the folks who have had the first dose are missing the second dose. So there seems to be some momentum here. And to Barbara's point, Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit, of open up this, this, this set of issues that are associated with this complex analysis of the, the pharma industry, really.
0: Sure. Well, uh, because we focus or I focus on uh, branding and marketing at Adweek, uh, as I've been watching this ba- vaccine story unfold, Uh, I was thinking, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is historically held in some of the lowest regard by consumers as any industry. And this has been true for quite a few years. And one of the things that I was wondering is, uh, you know, is this vaccine period, if you will, an opportunity for big pharma to do some reputation repair via marketing? And, um, you know, has that started to happen and uh, you know, if not, why not? And so, I just wanted to take a look at, um, you know, an industry that's kind of beleaguered for a number of reasons that Americas you and I have talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if this is possibly, you know, their big break in terms of uh, customer perceptions, mm-hmm. I
2: think uh, you know, and even, oh, no, even no, if you think it is a big, even if you think this is their big break. Um, I would imagine you've been a, a veteran reporter long enough that you don't imagine there's going to be a homogeneous response to the the pharma company and creating these vaccines anyway. So
0: I would no, imagine you no, go I into mean, with that I, I mean, there's there's so rarely that I mean, when you're talking about an industry that is this much in the crosshairs, I don't think that we're gonna get any kind of homogeneous response. And and I think a lot of it comes down to how you feel about vaccines, how you feel about science, where you get your news, Mm -hmm. and all those other hot-button things. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, one thing is certain. Um, Pharma is usually not an industry that's top of mind for a lot of consumers, unless they are going to the drugstore and they're angry about drug prices. But (laughs) on a day-to-day basis, most people don't think about this, right? right? One of the reasons why I wanted to do this story is because everybody is thinking about this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people, I think, have learned the names of big pharma firms that they might not have known otherwise. I know mm-hmm. that I have.
1: Right, and I think what's super interesting, when I was actually looking at this, Barbara, uh, the, there's there's more than just three companies who have a vaccination uh, protocol, but we only hear about Pfizer, Moderna, and what's the other one, Barbara? Johnson and Johnson. Johnson Johnson, and johnson protocol, so, so, well. and j and J, I I guess, has the single dose, but I think what's yeah fascinating when i think to my i want to hear your perspective on this as well barbara when i think about the pharma companies i think profit gouging and i kind of I, in my mind i have this perception of like evil folks that are just like you know putting out a drug it's nine thousand dollars and sick people can't get the drug and all this kind of stuff there's all this baggage i mean am i wrong is this is this not a perception barbara that exists out there in the marketplace in terms of the average consumer or what what am i missing here
2: Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because, and I do definitely want to hear Robert's point of view and what he found, but just to to put out two different sides on this, I've always thought about the argument of pharma as, in some sense, the good guys, and I understand that um, what you're talking about and the idea of high drug prices, and, and, and many times they have virtually a monopoly because they have a patent, and if you want the drug, they're going to charge whatever they charge, But the argument from the pharma point of view is if we don't charge those big prices while we're on patent, we can't recoup our R&D costs. And without somebody paying for the R&D, we're not gonna develop the -the state-of-the-art drugs that we have. Mm. So I think you could look at this whole year of vaccine development as support for investing in Mm. R&D. Which I think was a little bit what Robert was going for. Maybe this would give some reason for people to believe in pharma. Mm -hmm. So I think that part of, pharma has a different game to play. They are in product focused business. They're not marketing. They Mm -hmm. are pretty much monopolies when they come out with their drugs. And their goal is to create the best drugs possible and that costs a lot of money. So I think it's a different lens to look at it Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. you might look at somebody selling toothpaste.
1: Yeah, that's a great, what, what are your thoughts on this Robert? Because Barbara's point's a great point. Uh, but the, the challenge, of course, is, and I think you talk about this, Robert, is that the, the stories never get told about the important economics of being in the drug business. Those aren't the stories that get shared. What gets shared is the the CEO who is caught right. uh, you know, doing yeah. something that becomes the vilification. Right. Now, t- talk to us through this analysis, Robert. What are the perceptions that have to be changed and how... How are, how are these pharma companies stepping towards this potential rebrand opportunity or are they missing the opportunity?
0: Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first of all, I take Barbara's point and that's in fact something that the pharmaceutical industry has been arguing for quite some time. And you know, to a certain extent, I think they're right. They do reinvest a lot of money on R&D because they have to. And they also have a relatively small window of on-patent uh, protection in which to make their profits. Um, although in the case of the COVID vaccine, though, I think it's important to point out that this was government money, um, that was either funding the research or in the case of Pfizer, I believe it's Pfizer, um, in the form of guaranteed purchases by the government for whatever they had come up with. And so... They were indemnified to a great extent on taking the risks that they normally take in the free market during non-pandemic times. So that's I just one have to interrupt for
2: one second. Uh, it's it's the government and Dolly Parton didn't Dolly mm. Parton give it? <laughs> he did indeed.
0: <laughs> of uh, course, how, how could I have left her out? Yes, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's um, true. And the, but to to get to your one of the points you raised, America, is that the the research is that it's, it's, let me back up, I'm always worried about letting my experience as a consumer cloud my writing too much, because it's hard to write about brands in, in a wholly objective way, because I buy brands, right? We all do. Um, so I can't totally step outside the circle. However, there's a lot of data out there, uh, including some that I cite in the story, specifically from Morning Consult, mm-hmm. that's saying that the pharmaceutical industry's net favorability is actually on the rise. Mm. But we have to give that context because it was 22% last February. <laughs> and then as of last month, it's crept up to 26%. Now, if I got a grade like that in one of your classes, yeah. I don't think you'd be putting a star <laughs> on my head. Would I would. You? <laughs> so, you yeah. know, that that is, and and also, America's as you had alluded to, there are a lot of things in the news and in the culture that clouds people's perceptions about big pharma and i don't think that people would necessarily argue that they're not benefiting people with life-saving drugs i am alive right now because of some of them and i you know i give them their due Mm -hmm. when my mom was a little girl she got the the salk polio vaccine Mm. Uh... you could argue that if it weren't for the drug companies like merck who made that vaccine i wouldn't be here right now right Mm so you know i'm grateful where it's appropriate however uh, I don't know if you were able to sit through Martin Screlli's uh, testimony without your blood pressure going up, speaking of medications that we need. <laughs> um, or when you go to fill a prescription, and I have several of them, and uh, one of them is a thousand dollars. and or when you read about the uh, opiate crisis, uh. or you know the the Sackler family and their billions, and you know, this ongoing dispute with the settlement, to some 3,000 lawsuits against Purdue Pharma. Look, these things are really, really hard to get out from under.
2: Yeah, that's true. Let me reintroduce you. I'm Barbara Kahn, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor Americus-Reed. This is Marketing Matters. And today, we're joined by Robert Clara, who's a senior editor of brands at Adweek. And he specializes in covering the evolution and impact of brands. And we're really talking about what the public thinks about the Mm -hmm. branding of pharma drugs Mm. or pharma brands, and maybe how that might be changing because they seem to be saving the day in the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, And...
0: Do you do want you me want to, to talk different? about some marketing? Because you had asked about that. There are a few efforts okay. that have come out in the past
1: few months. Well, but before before you do that, Robert, I want okay. to ask Barbara specifically, like, did, Barbara, how would you, before Robert tells us kind of what's been doing, what would you see, Barbara, in your mind as a good example of these pharma companies leveraging the moment to be able to tell Uh, a a positive story what would that what would that messaging look like that would not seem to be exploitative or you know taking advantage of the moment what are your thoughts on well
2: You know I mean like I started to say typically it's changed now because there is more competition Mm. in the pharma business so for example in different cancer drugs even if you have a patent it's still competitive Mm. as to which immunotherapy you're going to use so the world Mm. has changed but historically and you know we America's you and I have taught some we're in Pill Hill here in Philadelphia and a lot of our executive ed programs are pharma um, executives who come to us for marketing and typically the pharma companies aren't really that interested in spending money on marketing dollars Mm -hmm. because they are in the R&D business. Mm -hmm. They are in the product business. And if you don't like what they're doing, it doesn't matter that much to them because that's not really their focus. Um, And so I I think like in pursuing the vaccine, the very best thing that they can do is focus on making the vaccine and distributing it. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think they would think it's that good a use of their money to try to create any kind of public goodwill or whatever. Now that may or may not be smart for the future, when they're under some more competitive pressure. But right now I don't actually think that was their focus. So
1: in- that's Robert, part of the
2: reason they may not have the best brand image.
1: So tell us, a, be, build on that Robert and tell us what you've seen and relate that back to what Barbara's point. This is an interesting point. It kind of like the marketing is non-marketing in some senses as Barbara's argument. Yeah, well, no, it's what
2: product is, focused. Okay, Yeah, focused on product it's as weird, opposed right? to other because
0: things. Because prior to pharmaceutical companies being able to Uh, advertised direct to consumer, they were mainly aiming at physicians, right? And now we live in the era of ask your doctor about (laughs) XYZ, right? Which drives doctors insane, from what I read. Uh, I know it drives my doctor insane. And, um, And so she's right. This idea of uh approaching mm-hmm. the consumer directly with a public benefit message is i don't remember anything quite like this frankly mm-hmm. um and yet we've seen some of it and it was earlier than i thought this is several months back johnson and johnson had its behind the mask spot oh. um the pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of america had a campaign called in common and then probably the most prominent one was from Pfizer mm-hmm. uh, and it came out in April and that was at science will win campaign. And almost ah. they, these things shared very similar imagery in common and messaging too. And I think it's really interesting because I think they had a very, very delicate line to walk here mm. that they couldn't really say, yay us, right? They're not going to come out and say, Hey, we pulled your tails out of the mud. Aren't we great? Um, <laughs> And so it features a lot of the standard tropes of uh, earnest scientists in lab coats and uh, you know this message of unity. Uh, yeah. and you know that's your standard stuff. but one thing that I did think was interesting to come out of all of this was, an emphasis on science and empiricism, uh-huh. which I think was a, a subtext that we probably wouldn't have seen if we weren't through the last four years politically that we've been through. Absolutely. Um, you know, re-establishing their reputations in traditional science, uh-huh. uh, and then implying the public benefit that goes with that. Interesting. Uh, and so I think that they, actually, I, I, I'm pretty jaded about this kind of thing, but I think these were pretty solid efforts for what mm-hmm. they were, given the fact that, in a sense, they had a hand tied behind their backs mm-hmm. with this kind of messaging.
1: And what I think is also interesting, I want to, I just want to get your perspective on this because it triggered something in my mind, Barbara, and that is this, this, to your point, Barbara, about, listen, focus on the product, stay out of this other stuff, uh, is important in some sense because there is kind of inherently a political ideological thing that's was, underneath that all was of was this. To to. And I was just looking at uh, CNN is reporting that, Uh, apparently in a new research poll, 33% of Republicans are reporting that they will not get the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, while 23% of Democrats are reporting that they will not get it, which is closer to kind of the average overall in the country. So to Barbara's point, it's kind of like, listen, this this science is awesome thing, and all of this stuff is is stepping into that domain, right, Robert? And so there's 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 some there's some exposure there that you have to be a little bit careful of. What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah,
2: that's what I was asking for at the beginning. Also, you're not going to expect a homogeneous response to this in any event. And as you mentioned, Robert, um, you know, I'll let you proceed again. In the last four years, this issue has become very politicized. So even if you're going to bring Build a brand, you're it's dangerous territory to walk right. through.
0: Right. Right. And you know, that's actually why I was, you know, as a consumer, not as a reporter as such, but as a consumer, I was impressed with with Pfizer's Science Will Win campaign and staking its brand so directly to science and empirical research. Because uh to Americus's point, yeah, I mean it's kind of surreal to think that. Public health measures prevented uh, that are intended to prevent people from dying suddenly become politically polarizing things. Um, You know, people could be waving the flag to their detriment in many of these cases. And so I do think for large companies, certainly for publicly traded companies, getting anywhere near a political issue starts to get you know, you're walking toward the minefield there, right? Mm -hmm. So even though Pfizer's message was in a sense, when you look at the visual imagery, it was kind of anodyne. The fact that they came down so firmly on the side of science, and they also did a rebranding effort um, and they redid their logo and it's a ribbon helix. That's what they're calling it. And obviously, a helix is a scientific term in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that they were kind of staking out their ground there. And I I admire them for doing it.
1: Interesting. Barbara, because Barbara and I have, Barbara, how many times have we have guests on this program that have made the the point that you should be purpose-driven, you should state your values, you should take these stands? Haven't we seen, like, almost all of the guests we have make this argument, right, Barbara? It's interesting. But here, it's kind of like, well, maybe you just should be really, really careful here. What are your thoughts?
2: It is interesting because there is definitely this push. And, Robert, actually, I am curious, even stepping outside of pharma, Americas and I, as Americas alluded, have talked about this issue a lot, the changing role of brands and the role of brands taking a stand or or expressing values. Um, it, It is interesting that nowadays I think it's gotten to the point almost where not taking a stand is taking a stand. And so we're really starting to see brands just, you know, either it's sustainability or it's make the earth a better place or right. do no evil. Well, you know, there's, uh,
0: there's there's another wrinkle to this that I'm sure you both are very aware of, which is, you know, there's quite a bit of research out there that suggests that um, the belief on the part of consumers that brands should take political stands and social stands is one that shows itself up most strongly when it comes to younger consumers. And that can leave a lot of brands in uh, in quite a pickle, because Gen Y consumers really want this. They've grown up in an age of social media, uh, and they want you know a company to to show its cards, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas older consumers, and I, I happen to be one of them, not you know not politically, but certainly age-wise, I'm a Gen Xer. If you look at the research, um, people in my age cohort don't feel as strongly about that. So I feel like uh, a brand today, unless it's a brand like, I don't know, uh, Forever 21 or something that's obviously not aiming for somebody like me, Um, you know, if it's a brand that has a broad scale demographic uh, in sight, I think that it's a very, very careful decision that has to be made.
2: Well, you know, what's happened now in COVID is, first of all, when we we're all scared uh, and staying inside our houses and afraid to touch anything or all of that, a lot of the recycling efforts and sustainability efforts went by the wayside. And then when we were getting everything delivered, that was actually raising our carbon footprint. I mean, there was we were really going against sustainability and the progress we've made. Have you seen brands um, try to reverse that or, you know, to try to... Counter, I I think that you wrote an article about Etsy along these ideas and can you explain that? In that article, you were quite good about explaining all the different terms and the different positions brands are taking on that dimension.
0: Yeah, um, I had an unusual opportunity and I've been waiting for this for a while now because Uh, Where I sit at Adweek, I get an email, you know, every day or several a day about brands making uh, environmental and sustainability claims. And it seemed to me that if you peeled away all of the COVID news, there was a a second big story uh, in recent months over all of these brands doing this. And just last week, Wells Fargo uh, pledged carbon neutrality, and it was the last major bank to do it. FedEx announced last week that it's spending $2 billion on electric vehicles. There's the Jeff Bezos Amazon Climate Pledge, and now 52 or 53 companies have signed that. So this is clearly a thing. Obviously, it's been a thing for a while, but now we're really starting to see some movement on the part of big companies to make some gestures or take some corrective measures uh, toward reversing climate change. Mm. What I wanted to do with the article, though, is use one company as an example and really take it apart because we hear so much about, we hear all this feel good speak around this issue. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people don't really know what on earth that means. So when Etsy contacted me uh, with, a, with a press release saying that uh, it wanted to go to carbon zero, I had decided to pin them to the mat and said, you know what, I'll write about this if you really put your sustainability vp on the phone with me and walk me oh, through yeah. how it works and they interesting. did
1: interesting oh
2: so, good so yeah. now, now we get to benefit yeah. yeah can you define all those words like yeah carbon it's I, I was, neutral and-
1: yeah cuz I, I the only thing i know i know carb neutral which is me not eating bread <laughs> <Very> well, <laughs> But well yeah. what is this stuff we like, like Barbara's saying like what is carbon neutral and net zero and, and all this stuff net zero right
2: yeah.
0: yeah here's here here's my layman's take on it and and my my caveat is that uh, the environmental beat is not my usual one. So I've taken a crash course in the last week. Uh, so if, if I make any mistakes, um, you can write to my editor and have me fired. But <laughs> uh, carbon neutral, actually, carbon neutrality, Etsy hit that in 2019. And basically, what that means is when a company becomes carbon neutral, it means that it has that the carbon that it emits has been offset by carbon credits that it purchases okay so for every uh you know release of co2 um, it basically it purchases an indulgence if you will to make mm. good on it okay it, it, it neutralizes it carbon credits you hear that term too what on earth are those um carbon credits are things that companies literally buy and they buy them from these third-party firms that have a whole setup with this but they come from underwriting eco-friendly stuff like, solar and wind farms or pledging to conserve hardwood forests or even buying efficient cookstoves for uh, for people in underdeveloped countries. And that's so really if you have a country in the United States that's emitting a certain amount of carbon that wants to go carbon neutral, that will purchase the corresponding number of offsets, <laughs> usually in another part of the world, usually a less privileged part of the world. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that you balance it. Now, here's mm-hmm. where the difference comes in. Um, Carbon zero, and by the way, not everybody agrees on the definitions for these things, so I'm not going to be able to explain them, but carbon zero is theoretically better than carbon neutral for the simple reason that it addresses the carbon footprint itself Mm -hmm. and focuses on making it less. Got it. So instead of taking existing huge footprint and trying to offset it mm. you're saying hey our footprint should be smaller in the first place does that make any sense it makes sense yeah um, that makes
2: perfect Barbara,
1: Barbara I need your help because you're going to have to take what Robert just said and, and put it into how do you put that into a, a 30 second message if you're a brand <laughs> trying, to say, trying to trying to try to tell you people know, I mean it's doing.
2: basically just undoing the damage you caused or making the earth a better place you know uh-huh. it's like a right. higher stand holding it's, it's, yourself to a higher
1: standard it's pretty sophisticated though right I mean it's not it's not simple. I mean, in some senses well, it is. Well, it's not
2: that hard to understand, but to figure out how to do it is gonna well, be. Well, to know, figure like, out remember, how Remember, these it. are companies. Sure. Yeah, and these fig- are companies that are not experts in this. And now suddenly, you know, like Robert had to get up to speed. They now have to hire sustainability um, officers, et cetera. So that's another thing, you know, at brands are now being, they're now responsible for making the earth a better place. They're not just responsible for building better shoes or selling crafts In Etsy's point of view, being a platform. But, so but that adds you, a lot of costs.
1: Yeah. And to that point, Robert, are you finding that consumers care about this? Are consumers yeah, because are, that's, the, that's the
0: marketing part of this is uh, when however many years ago, Al Gore first started to sign a, you know, sound a broad scale public message about, hey guys, we're in trouble, right? I don't think the public awareness is anywhere near as high as it is now. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's younger consumers who are carrying that forward. Without
2: question. Yeah, so, no.
0: you know, codgers like me, do we care? I'm not sure. I do personally, but I'm not sure as much, but I do know anecdotally and research wise that younger people do. Mm-hmm. And one last very, very quick thing, one of the reasons why I wanted to pay attention to Etsy is because, because it's an online platform, an online commerce platform, uh, 75% of its carbon emissions take yeah, place yeah. through delivery trucks and planes, right, which are outside that's their scope of immediate control. Right. So they also talked to me about some things that it does behind the scenes, mm-hmm. like influencing government regulations and encouraging, quote unquote, shippers to buy electric trucks and that yeah. kind of thing so there's a whole lot of things that go on a whole world that i think a lot of people are not aware of right um and uh and i think that if the marketing ben i'd like to think that their hearts are in the right place and i'm sure they are but if the marketing benefit weren't there they wouldn't have bothered reaching out to somebody like me right mm.
1: oh that's fair that's a fair <laughs> assumption well
2: I mean, that's I, I always, fair i uh, I, always- I mean
1: I always wonder whether or not, you know, to Barbara's point, like people say they care, but then the question is like, will you change your behavior? Will you inconvenience yourself if you're one of these young consumers? Will you switch?
0: Will you Yeah? And that's that's always that's always the separation point. And I've seen research to this effect that when questioned, you'll have a surprisingly high number of people saying, Yes, I really want to support green brands, but then when you really pin them. Uh, to find out that if just find out if they're willing to ditch their brands for one that's more green a lot of the time they don't and so no, you know there's that's the good intentions what's different. and
2: But that is what's different. I agree, Robert, with what you're saying about really old codgers like boomers, let alone Gen X, and maybe even the older millennials. But I do think we are literally seeing differences in the young people where they are putting their money where their mouth is, so much so that they're not buying as much product as they used to. So like, for example, one of the big trends in retail, and I'm sure you know this, is re-commerce. So, you know, you don't throw things mm-hmm. away, you recycle them. And that's an right. example of really caring about stuff like this. So I, I think it is way more than just, you know, what they say and not what they do. I think they are doing things differently. Yeah. And I, that I, is part of the reason.
0: I agree with you. Cause a number of years ago, I did a story about how thrift shops got super hip all of a sudden. Because when I was a kid, you went to the salvation army if you were poor. Right. Now do you go there if you're cool. <laughs> and so right. I, I I, do attribute this to younger consumers influencing the culture to this end.
2: And for a good reason, you know, and you're seeing people buy less and, you know, and maybe it's- Part of it pushing back against you know the older generation and you know the sophistication you're talking about with all the complexity of trying to make your way through this COVID world to also have to navigate this tricky landscape seems like there's a lot of pressure on today's companies to succeed. So yeah, you know absolutely. Just, we only have a few we have a few seconds left, and you've been such a wonderful guest. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind giving us like three big sound points for like America's class. Can you tell us the biggest things you've seen in branding and in, in covering, you know, one is I suppose the sustainability effort, but are there other things that you'd want to call out for our, for our students and our guests.
0: Well, I mean. <laughs> I'll tell you some of the things that I'm hearing right now, um, and, and I, I guess they're marketing-ish, so give me, give me some rope here, okay? <laughs> um, uh, right now, as the pandemic looks like it may be coming to an end within the you know visible future, there is a lot of companies thinking, is there going to be a continuation of the online shopping that everybody has learned how to do over the past year? including people who never might've done it before, or will there be uh, what I'm hearing called revenge shopping, i.e., oh my God, I can finally get out of my house and I am going to Tiffany and buying that, uh, you know, Paloma Picasso necklace or whatever, right? Um, And I think that that is really, really big in terms of the service industries out there that depend on foot traffic. Um, the other thing that I'm hearing about is uh, brands that have a large brick and mortar presence, figuring out ways to, and I hate to use this term because I hear it too much, but figuring out ways to turn their stores into experiential marketing environments, i.e. what is it about the physical shopping experience that, that, that can market the brand better than any other type, uh, be- better than advertising can, right? And that's the immersive in-person experience. That's the edge they have. So how is that going to play into it? And then the other thing, I guess, is this is the big catch-22 for a lot of brands and has been over the last year because so many of their revenues have been so depressed that that's pinched the amount of money that they have for marketing. And yet right now, you could argue that they really need to be marketing. And so they're stuck because they need to do something that's hard to fund. And so what's that going to look like? So those are three things that I'm hearing about.
2: Nice. Wow, that's fantastic. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. And where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your writing?
0: Well, you can just go to adweek.com um, and all my stuff is there. And uh, we have a brand vertical that you can click on and you'll find me and you'll find the articles that the uh, other colleagues on my, uh, on my desk file. Excellent.
2: That's fantastic. Thank you very much. This is Marketing Matters Business Radio, Sirius XM 132.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights Podcast on iTunes and Google Play.